This B Podcast Network show is presented by IXL. IXL's all-inclusive online teaching and learning platform simplifies ed tech needs and accelerates achievement in 95 of the top 100 U.S. school districts. IXL delivers personalized learning across a comprehensive pre-K-12 curriculum, including math, language arts, science, and social studies, and it helps you assess student performance through actionable real-time insights at every level of your school or district. This one solution performs work that typically requires dozens of different tools. Want to find out why so many leading districts trust IXL? Visit IXL.com forward slash B-E. That's IXL.com forward slash B-E. TL Talk Radio, Season 5, Episode 10. Welcome to Season 5, Episode 10 of TL Talk Radio, a regular podcast with Lynn Funihatton and Randy Ziegenfuss, where our goal is to engage you in learning, motivate you to share your work, and inspire you to lead for the change we need in schools for the digital age. I'm Randy Ziegenfuss. And I'm Lynn Funihatton. Good morning, Randy. Good morning. So today we're speaking with Julie Wilson, author of The Human Side of Changing Education, How to Lead Change with Clarity, Conviction, and Courage. Julie coaches leaders who lead change. She graduated from Harvard Graduate School of Education with a master's degree in technology, innovation, and education, and a bachelor's of art in business administration and French from Queen's University in Belfast, Northern Ireland. She has over 15 years' experience building effective learning environments that unlock human potential and enable organizational culture to adapt and grow during times of change. So welcome to the show, Julie. Thank you for having me, Randy. It's a, a topic that's near and dear to our heart as superintendent and associate superintendent here in our small little school district in Pennsylvania, and we are working hard to bring about this change, and uh, you frame it in a very uh, interesting way. So let's start with a personal story about how you personally got connected to this work of leadership, school change, and a human-centered approach. Okay, well, it was uh, somewhat of a circuitous route, uh, to be honest. So I've spent the last 20 years working in adult development, leadership development, and building organizational change capacity. And about 10 years ago, I noticed this theme in my work with adults, which was that so much of what we were uh, working on in leadership coaching, leadership development programs, was essentially helping them unlearn what they learned through a standardized system of education. So that brought me back to K-12 and I realized with some horror that in the 20 plus years since I had graduated high school, not a lot had changed. So that sent me on an odyssey, if you will, to find find those schools and districts where change had happened, how had that come to be and what were some of the leading practices uh, that are out there. And that was, I think that was back in 2008, 2009 that I started that work. Wow, so you've been thinking about this for some time. Yes, yes. <laughs> and I, 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 I sometimes joke that my gateway drug to this whole field of work was back when I read The Little Engine That Could by Wadi Piper, back when I think was age eight or nine. Okay. I've just always been, always been fascinated by human potential mm-hmm. and how do, you, how do you unlock human potential. Sure. So the human side of changing education, um, your book, is really centered on the premise that when we ask schools to change, we ask the humans to change, and that means these humans are going to need special 
special tools and a human-centered approach. So talk to us a little bit about what you mean by that in, in your book, The Human Side of Changing Education. I, I think so much uh, of, of the challenge that we're dealing with is the fact that we have an industrial model of education, which means we have industrial an industrial management model. And a lot of the, the work that I've seen fail over the years uh, is basically centered under the premise that if I tweak this over here, this will have a different output over here. And I have somewhat of a love-hate relationship with uh, logic models of change because you've got these inputs, you've got these outputs, you've got the activities in between. And I oftentimes think that looks really nice and elegant, but if I throw a thousand kids in there and a couple of hundred adults and maybe a thousand people from the broader community, what happens What happens to that nice, that nice model? So <laughs> it really is... <laughs> helping people understand that uh, we are not widgets. We are not wanting to produce widgets at the end <laughs> of the educational process. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there is so much that we know uh, through neuroscience and learning and human development uh, that we can use in the change process, but that we typically don't. So if this idea of changing schools is not a technical problem that we can just wave a wand and a checklist and have people walk through it as if they're non-human. Um, what, what do you suggest are some of those tools that would be available to leaders um, as we embark on more complex change? Sure. So th- there's a, a framework that I discuss uh, and, and relate to education in the book uh, from Ken, uh, Ken uh, sorry, Tony Bono and Ken Kerber. And they differentiate three approaches to change. And I think this is a tool uh, that the schools and districts with whom I work find to be really helpful because it helps break down the fact that there isn't just one kind of change, that you have a bunch of tools in your tool belt. And let's get really clear on the method that we're using and why we're using it. And in the book, you'll see it plotted on the axes of organizational complexity and socio-technical uncertainty. Uh, But uh, short form is... We've got planned change, directed change, and iterative changing. And schools, for the most part, I think, are really good at planned change. So establishing a vision for the school, maybe following a six to 18-month process where you bring a broad cross-section of your community together to talk about what's the vision that we want to see for our graduating class, you know, five years from now, 12 years from now. Uh, Given that, what's worth learning uh, what are the pedagogical approaches that we need to use? How might we need to rethink uh, assessment? Where I see schools not do as good a job is really understanding that what's next with regards to implementation is an appetite for risk and for iterative changing because the cookie cutter model of how we do this does not exist because each school is different, each community is different. So how your district might implement personalized learning, for example, could be very different to another district, just one, you know, just one district away, if you will. So it's really making this shift from, okay, now we have this plan to, unfortunately, there is no spreadsheet that exists on the superintendent's hard drive or the principal's hard drive with how we're going to implement this step by step. And I I love that uh, quote that I, I, I cited in the book from Winston Churchill, where he says that planning is essential and all plans are useless. So it's really helping folks understand that you need a plan. You need some sense of, okay, what are we doing here? And a good strategic planning process gives you a clear North Star. 
but how we implement could be three to seven years and requires an appetite for risk, for trying new things, uh, for failure, and really understanding what iterative changing looks like uh, in progress. And I make the connection of understanding what that looks like from the folks within the organization that you're asking to change too. So like we talk Mm -hmm. about learner-centered education, starting with the learners and their unique strengths, challenges, and needs. And when we're, so the connection I'm making is when we're changing our organizations, we have that plan, but it's not something that we do to them. We actually have to put that plan aside for a second and, and get to know Mm -hmm. who are those learners. And then how does that, how does the dynamic between the strengths and challenges and needs of those in the organization asking to be changed? How is that a dynamic between that them and the plan, so to speak, and, and being ready to take those risks and, and modify and iterate along the way. So that's the connection I'm making to what you're describing. I, I love that. Yes, you, you've made me think, Randy, I, I think of it as a net, the nested system of Russian dolls, if you will, because mm-hmm. if we're saying at the core of this, we want student-centered, learner-centered pedagogy. We want to start with the strengths of what, what the kids have. How can they build on those strengths? How can they stretch themselves? Uh, if everybody operated from a growth mindset, what might that look like? Uh, and then we need that for the adults as well. Uh, so I often think, but when I see a school strategic plan, my mind always goes to, okay, what's the adult development plan that will help support and implement this? And I just see it in uh, so many schools and districts, untapped potential uh, with the adults who could be leading and co-creating this change, uh, but are not being invited to the process, or there, there just isn't the, the conditions aren't set for that kind of conversation. So as Randy connected, I'm also connecting for a couple of reasons. Um, one, in 15-16, we spent the year visioning, talking with different stakeholders and different venues and developing a profile of a graduate, um, really identifying the knowledge, skills, and dispositions that we wanted to see in our learners. And then we talked about, okay, well, if we want to see this, we have to start redesigning our learning tasks and we have to start thinking about our learning environments. And we um, adopted a set of learning beliefs that are based on the learning beliefs um, from Education Reimagined. So we spent Mm. a year visioning and developing that, and then we started to talk about implementation, and we created some small groups for implementation, and um, we're finally this year at a tipping point where we're working with all of our staff members, and your idea about an appetite for risk-taking is so interesting to me because that, I think, is um, a a point of implementation that could be a challenge for us. You know, thinking about this looks different. What does this look like? We're not really sure what this looks like. You know, we need some brave people to think about what it could look like to reimagine and redesign some teaching and um, learning opportunities with our learners. And then we need to say, okay, what worked? What didn't work? And what do we try next? And um, I think your idea of three to seven years kind of gives me a little hope because we're in year three here and we're just really starting to make some, some progress in terms of, um, in terms of seeing some change in classrooms. So pretty excited that, and and we're able to really connect um, to your ideas in your book and what you've shared with us here this morning. Yeah, that's that's fantastic. It sounds like you're, you've, you've built and you're following, uh, just a really solid process where you've tilled the soil, you've planted some seeds, and now you need to nurture 
you need to nurture that. And you've hit the nail on the head. One of the one of the single biggest challenges is providing an environment where the adults feel it's safe to take risks. Because school is predicated on knowing, mm-hmm. not learning. Sure. And and we have these <laughs> systemic challenges, right? We have our students are still going to take these test scores and teachers are still mm-hmm. concerned about um, covering content so they can be successful on, on these tests or uh, do well in their courses so they can get into college. Like we still have these systemic um, issues and challenges to think about as, as we move forward. But the change mm-hmm. has been, is difficult because we don't know what it's going to look like and we do need to create this risk-taking um, supportive environment. So as we think mm-hmm. about that, why is it important for us to embrace this human-centered approach as we work towards this change in our district and, and as our leaders lead this change in their schools because our building leaders are the, the ones who are really on the ground with our teachers on a day-to-day basis? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, th- I think if we take the approach that, okay, that this is human-centered work as opposed to this is a management problem to be solved, then it brings it brings into play a whole other host of opportunities. And, and again, sometimes uh, what I see is there is this assumption that the plan exists somewhere out there and we'll be told what to do. So it's really helping people understand, I've got good news and bad news. <laughs> the good news is I'm not shoving you through a cookie cutter you know, process here you have to follow. The bad news is we have no step-by-step process for you to follow. We are co-creating this and building this together. And neuroscience tells us that we are driven by reward and punishment. We are dealing with uh, our brains that really helped us back when we were cavemen and cavewomen to fend off the saber-toothed tiger. There wasn't time in the moment to think, okay, there's a tiger coming at me. Is this a friendly tiger? Have I seen this tiger before? What do I think? Everything in your body goes to flight or fight uh, responses. And whenever you're in a meeting and you're being asked uh, to do something different or you're, be- you're being given feedback on something that didn't go so well, that triggers the very same responses. So really understanding, A, how adults learn and B, the neuroscience behind that can be really helpful. And one of those helpful frameworks that, that I have found and, and that I talk about in the book is the framework on transitions by William and Susan Bridges. And there they make the distinction between change and transition. So change is an event and it's external. That could be here's a strategic plan. This is how uh, this is the work that we're going to be working towards. Transition, on the other hand, is internal and it's psychological. And he talks about uh, both uh, William and Susan talk about Uh, endings, neutral zones, and new beginnings. And too often, particularly in the Western world, we don't honor or talk about or unpack the endings. And what I see uh, for for human beings going through change, the biggest biggest loss that they experience is loss of competence. So if I'm a physics teacher and I have taught this certain way for five years, 10 years, 20 years, and you're now asking me to partner with two or three colleagues to design an interdisciplinary project to design a rubric that will help reflect how the kids are learning these new habits of mind, you're taking me way out of my comfort zone. You're asking me to be incompetent for a period of time. Mm-hmm. So I'm a human being. I have, I've got a defense system. I'm going to think of reasons as to why I shouldn't do that. Mm-hmm. And even if I want to make that change, it's going to take a lot for me to step up and do it. So 
understanding the very human element of it, when we talk about it amongst ourselves and, and with our teams, it really helps to A, clarify the terrain that we're on and then B, what we might, what we might do about it. So what was the resource that you mentioned about the difference between transition and change? That sounds really interesting and connecting to our, to our work right now. Absolutely. So it's a book called Managing Transitions by William and Susan Bridges. Uh, William Bridges passed away a number of years ago, but his wife Susan is still with us. And I think, I think they came out with either a 20 or 25 year anniversary edition in the last year or two, which was uh, nicely updated. Really practical tools. It really helps unpack, unpack this whole concept of endings. Uh, and then also the neutral zone. That the neutral zone is a place of, uh, it's a place of confusion and ambiguity, but it's also a place of great creativity and innovation. And how might we really uh, leverage the neutral zone to help get us to that new beginning? Interesting connection, something we'll definitely investigate further. Mm-hmm. So on your website, which we will link uh, in our show notes, you have a bunch of additional resources uh, that include things like a roadmap for change, the book's companion guide, Your Hero's Journey, and an organizational mm-hmm. change capacity questionnaire. So how might our listeners who are leaders leading this kind of change or interested in leading this kind of change use those resources to support this work? Sure. So I, I put those resources up there because my hope is that uh, leadership teams, everybody gets a copy of the book, reads the book, and then starts to talk about how might we set up uh, a container for change uh, within our school or district. So the roadmap for change, that's just a, a one-pager downloadable uh, document that helps a reader just capture notes. Okay, under the heading of leading myself through change, leading this organization through change, just to capture some notes having read the book. So you might bring that to a faculty meeting, you know, here's what's resonating with me from the book, or here's what kind of questions the book raised for me. Uh, the Hero's Journey Companion Guide. So in the latter half of the book, I talk about the very personal nature of leading this change. And the Hero's Journey, uh, you're probably familiar with Joseph Campbell's work on the monomyth and that narrative arc. And I always find that English teachers in particular love this framework uh, and they can really dig into it and oftentimes lead this whole concept of a quest. Uh, but the companion guide uh, just helps walk the reader through their own hero's journey, the shift from the known world to the unknown world. And it can be an interesting way to think about personal development and individual goal planning uh, for the year ahead. And then the organizational change capacity questionnaire uh, that goes back to those three kinds of change that I mentioned earlier, directed change, planned change, and iterative changing. And it helps, uh, in particular, I think a senior team uh, or even a school board to unpack, you know, this is, these are our current strengths when it comes to our own individual school capacity for change. And these are the areas that we might work on. Let's pick a couple, work on them, and then take this survey again and see how we're doing in six months or a year's time. So one of the connections I'm making here throughout this conversation is, you know, something that I think has been in the back of my mind uh, from a leadership perspective, and that is that sometimes as leaders, we're, we're drawn to the easiest solution. So that might be bringing a consultant and they'll do their magic, or it might be reading a book or doing a book study or something like that. And, and, and they're not bad in themselves. But sometimes I think we we think there's the formula in those things and that we'll just sort of paste that over the top of the organization and 
it'll all be it'll all be good. And you know, part of I think what's a barrier or a change might be that those are good resources. Those are good resources to prompt our own thinking. But again, we still need to go back to those in the organization that we're asking to change and what are their needs and how do we reshape those frameworks or apply those in very unique ways. Um, so that sort of leads into the, the next question of what do you see in your work as some of those common pitfalls that that we as leaders face when we're trying to lead this change, especially um, leading for change in this, this world that we're living in now? Mm-hmm. Sure. Uh, so I think well, one of those common pitfalls is not understanding or appreciating how long this work takes. Mm. And it, it's again, it's good news, bad news. Um, <laughs> uh, oftentimes folks, you know, they like it when I say this is going to take three to seven years because intuitively they get it. But the flip side of that is it will take three to seven <laughs> years of, fo- of focused work. And, and, this is not through any bad intention of anybody that, that I've typically come across uh, with, within a school or, or district. It's by sheer force of the fact that schools are dealing with so much on any given day. There's, there's so much to deal with with the current bureaucratic system that you're charged with running. You can't shut down the school for a year uh, while you get everybody geared up to then move towards this different curricular and pedagogical model. You need to, you know, as Hyphus would say, you need to build a plane while you're flying it. Mm-hmm. So one of the most common pitfalls is A, not understanding uh, the amount of time it's going to take and B, understanding the sheer depth of it. Uh, so one of my most impactful courses I took uh, over a decade ago as a grad student was David Perkins' course, Educating for the Unknown. And that course was predicated on four through lines. First one, what's worth learning? Second, how's it best learned? Third, how do we get it taught that way? And fourth, how do we know it has been learned? So those four questions cut to the core of any educational enterprise, curriculum, pedagogy, teacher development, and assessment. And if you ask, and if a school asks themselves these questions from first principles, the answers are fundamentally different to how the industrial model was built. And that being the case, it speaks to how deep this work goes. You're retooling the system. And the final, not, not the all and end all, but you know, the third and sort of most um, prominent pitfall that I see is needing to embrace the fact that you need a very different uh, process of assessment. If you're really embracing what I see in so many strategic plans, which is we want more creativity, more critical thinkers, more self-directed learning, that cannot be assessed through a standardized test score. So we have this challenge of we value what we measure instead of measuring what we value. And, And as you probably know, this field of assessment is emerging right now. It doesn't exist, as in here are the valid and reliable methods to assess creativity. Mm-hmm. And God help us all, if we ever have a test where you would get 93 on kindness and I would get, you know, somebody else would get 67. <laughs> that, that, that's not what we're going for. Uh, mm-hmm. 
but they're, they're great people doing great work there in assessment. Uh, and one of my biggest hopes for the next five years is that field of assessment uh, really starts to take off in a very different way than it has historically. Interesting thoughts to think about some of those common pitfalls as we reflect on our, our work and our leaders' work in our district. So before we invite you to share about what's next for you and what's your work, what you're working on next, uh, maybe you can share with us some ideas for our lightning response questions. So, All right, hit me. <laughs> so first, who's one expert our listeners should connect with to learn more about school change? Uh, I would recommend Robert Keegan from the Graduate School of Education. He focuses on adult development and uh, two of his most recent books. So the Immunity to Change, fantastic framework, uh, really rich in both an individual and organizational level. And then his most recent book, An Everyone Culture, that speaks to how to develop a true culture of development, coaching and feedback. Okay, thank you. Love his and work. you gave us a couple of books. Um, if you were recommending another book, uh, we also linked Managing Transitions. Is there any other book that you would recommend? Uh, in addition to those mentioned, I would also recommend uh, a guy called Frederick Laloux, L-A-L-O-U-X, and he wrote a book called Reinventing Organizations. And he talks about this concept of a Teal organization, which when you dig into that is very different to how organizations are currently structured. And I would love to see schools move more towards that kind of organizational model. Okay, great. Thank you. We'll add that to the show notes. And finally, um, what's one online site or resource or maybe even a person whom or that you learn from regularly? Uh, a little bit um, counterintuitive, uh, a poet called David White. That's White with a Y. And he, he writes about organizations poetically. And I really encourage listeners to, to Google, Google him and also to access any of his YouTube clips where he recites his own poetry. There's just a depth there that speaks to the challenge of individual and organizational change that, that literally gives me goosebumps. So if I'm ever <laughs> hitting a, a rough spot, I just listen to a bit of David White and that gets me back on track. <laughs> Interesting. Yes, we'll definitely find those resources and add them to the show notes. Thank you. Yeah. Well, this You're is, welcome. This has been a great conversation, Julie. Thank you very much. And, but before we leave, uh, is there anything that you'd like to share with our listeners? Like what's next for you? What are you working on that you'd like to share? Sure. Uh, well, um, my work here is emergent, so I'm always sort of keeping my ear to the ground with, with, with what's next. Uh, a couple of things that are percolating. One is a hero's journey app. So part of the challenge that I see is a lot of reinventing the wheel and also lone folks out there doing this work. Uh, and it can be lonely. So I'm in the process of scoping out what would an app look like that would help connect people doing this work so they could do it as a tribe as opposed to lone individuals. And then I'm also thinking about what's, what's the next book. And I'd like to dig in more into this whole concept of uh, the neuroscience behind change and adult learning and how schools can really start to leverage that in, in a very accessible, plain English way that's grounded in a lot of good, good science. Very interesting. Well, we'll look forward to tracking that and uh, maybe have you come back on in the future for some more conversation around those ideas. That would be great. And thank you for having me on for this one. Thank you. Our pleasure.
So to learn more about Julie's work, you can visit in the show notes. We linked her her book, and you can connect with Julie on LinkedIn. Also check out the Institute for the Future of Learning. Consider signing up for that newsletter. Um, Julie will be at some upcoming events, CTL, AMLE, and ASCD. So you can check out those resources. And um, we also linked in the show notes the lightning round responses, managing transitions and books. And we'll check out David, um, the poet. Looking forward to seeing those. Maybe we'll find some YouTube clips. So each episode, we leave you with a question to think about and the idea of provoking some reflection and conversation. This episode's question, how has your approach to leading change been human-centered and how might you grow in this area? If you've enjoyed this episode, would like to comment or check out the resources shared today, visit the show notes at tltalkradio.org and look for Season 5, Episode 10. And that's all for now. We'll be back soon with another conversation featuring another innovative thought leader. Thanks again, Julie. Thanks, Julie. Bye-bye. Thanks, Randy. Thanks, Lynn. Want to simplify your school's technology, save teachers time, and improve students' performance on state assessments? You can do it all, but don't waste another minute. Head straight to IXL.com forward slash BE to learn how IXL's research-proven teaching and learning platform can help you achieve all of these goals. That's IXL.com forward slash BE.